So, Glenn, why don't you cook? I'm just looking out for others by not subjecting anyone to my woeful cooking. Right, so you've got away with it for this long because there was always a woman around to cook for you. Well, yeah, that's true as well. And look, I do take out the rubbish. I'm not completely useless. Yeah, same, I take out the rubbish too. Why is that? Why do we have these expectations around the different things men and women are supposed to do? What does a man look like? Is he tall, strong and well composed? Because I'm none of those. The angle between your arm and your forearm, it has an angle like that. And this is different between male and female. And it can potentially have an impact on how the accuracy of our throwing uh, ability this feels quite controversial, this sort of stuff, so throwing like a girl is actually a thing. Masculinity is far more rigid than femininity. The narrow range of behaviours that are considered appropriate for men to engage in is extremely problematic. My daughter calls me Papa. Our boys and our girls were being what people wanted them to be. They were trying to fit in a box. And if they didn't fit in their box, they were given a hard time. And other people were defining who they should be and how they should be. This is He'll Be Right, a six-part podcast from Stuff and Bird of Paradise Productions, exploring how to be a modern man. I'm John Daniel. And I'm Glenn McConnell. In this episode, we're looking at sex and gender, what science tells us about the different sexes, and how our society has built on those perceptions in ways that can be dangerous for everyone. Yeah, just to remind you, sex is the biological, anatomical side of things. Basically, what you have between your legs, while gender is the way you identify yourself. So, what's in your head? We're also going to meet people fighting against some of those oversimplified perceptions that society pushes on us. When I first came across one of them online, I actually thought they were trolling people like me when they talked about maternity wards being gendered. I thought that sounded laughable. But in the end, I learned a lot from sitting down and talking to them. So if you're a bit weary of the rise of trans issues, stick around. You might learn something too. We're going to get a feel for how complexity and diversity can be liberating rather than threatening. Yeah, it's funny how fast some of this stuff moves. I know this will seem like a long time ago to you, Glenn, but when I was a kid, being gay was literally illegal. Homosexual law reform passed in 1986, and it was a big deal. Homophobia was pretty standard. It's crazy. I was in school when gay marriage was legalised, and I don't think anyone in the whole of my conservative school could really understand how it was ever an issue. It seems like New Zealand was stuck in a culture that was really flat, where everyone was supposed to be equal. But that also meant everyone was supposed to be the same. That's probably fair, but at the same time, we were still pretty onto it or progressive by world standards. We're the first country to give women the vote, the first country in the Asia-Pacific to bring in gay marriage. Even in terms of political power, we've just had an election where the two major parties were led by women, and no one blinked an eye. Anyway, there's a lot to get through here, so let's look at the nuts and bolts of what makes a man, or at least a human male. Here's Dr Eric Wabowo from Otago University's anatomy department. He's a specialist in hormones and behaviour. 
So male and female, as we know, we we have anatomy, anatomical differences. Our uh, reproductive organs are not the same between male and female. All right, so penis and testicles for men, vagina and uterus for women, just in case anyone needed to hear me say that, we'll get to intersex. Males have the sex chromosome of uh, XY and females have the sex chromosomes of XX. But it goes beyond that. Uh, we have differences in our physiological measures. So for example, uh, our hormonal levels are different. So for example, males uh, have a higher testosterone level than in females. Okay, there's a lot of discussion around the effects of testosterone. It drives the secondary sexual characteristics of puberty, body hair, muscle growth, and it gets praised and blamed for the effect it has on male behaviour, while some people seem to think it's irrelevant. As Eric just said, women have testosterone too, but not as much. So it's become associated with lots of things like sex drive. So uh, testosterone definitely plays some role in our behaviour. For example, in terms of sexual behaviour, it plays a role in our sexual desire. It's quite well known in the literature that when when men are uh, and testosterone deprived, and they, most of them they will lose their uh, uh, sexual desire, there will be other uh, changes as well, which are um, like erectile problem, loss of ejaculation that can happen when we lose our testosterone. What about aggression? There are some data supporting that testosterone plays a role in, in, in aggressive behaviour. So those stereotypes about men being driven by their hormones, there is some evidence for that. But Eric is quick to point out that biology isn't everything. I think when we look at behaviour, we need to look at it more than the biology. I think we, in humans, we also need to look into social factors, uh, cultural factors that can potentially impact on how we behave. So our behavior is not only shaped by uh, the biology, but we also need to look at uh, factors which are beyond the biology. Yeah, while talking to Eric, we hear quite a lot about studies on rats that get castrated or injected with hormones. But as he says himself drawing conclusions about human behaviour from experiments on animals doesn't give the full picture. Still, there are differences that we can see in terms of things like mental health. Also, the prevalence of different conditions differ between sexes. So, for example, anxiety, insomnia, depression, those are more common in females than in males. And other conditions, for example, schizophrenia, dyslexia, and ADHD, those are more common in males. So, um, this suggests that there's neurobiological differences between sexes. There's also a hormonal study that seems to conform to stereotypes. A few of the cognitive data which have been quite well supported is the idea about verbal memory. So how we remember words, how we remember text. Women tend to perform better in that, whereas in men, they tend to perform better in spatial related memory. So spatial memory is a type of memory how we remember about uh, location or navigation, how we navigate through space. So for example, where did I park my car? Where did I put my key? How do we go through a maze, for example? Men tend to perform better in that, and this is um, thought to be because of the testosterone level. And there are data from prostate cancer patients who are on androgen deprivation that their spatial memory might potentially be affected because of the hormone deprivation. But the data are not consistent, uh, so uh, we can't really say for sure for now. It's important to remember that Eric's talking about tendencies here, not hard and fast rules, but they're probably behind some of the stereotypes we hear. Although in our culture, these tend to be co-opted negatively for women, so women can't read maps, 
whereas we don't hear much about women remembering facts better. He goes on to say that even our skeletons have subtle differences. The angle between your arm and your forearm, it has an angle like that. And this is different between male and female, and it can potentially have an impact on how the accuracy of our throwing uh, ability. This feels quite controversial, this sort of stuff, so throwing like a girl is actually a thing. The athletic performance between male and females uh, can be different and it can be uh, attributed to the, our skeletal differences. That's what I want to say. Okay, so while it might seem obvious, men and women are physically different. But apart from the reproductive organs, those differences are at the margins in terms of the way we live today. So in sport, you don't have men and women, say, throwing the javelin in the same competition, because men have some built-in advantages that would make it unfair. Right. But just because I'm a man doesn't mean I can throw a javelin further than any woman. There are thousands, maybe millions of women, who can throw a javelin further than I ever could. In the same way that while men are generally taller than women, some women are taller than some men. So generalisations leave out a lot of room where the difference between the sexes overlaps. There are other sports, like horse riding, where men and women compete alongside each other, and it doesn't seem to be a difference in terms of performance. Although there is some debate at the very top, in recent Olympic competition, while women have dominated the medals at dressage, men tend to dominate eventing and jumps. All right, enough about horses. Just while we're talking about elite sport, there have been recent controversies over the sex and gender identities of competitors. New Zealand weightlifter and trans woman Laurel Hubbard, who won gold at the Pacific Games, had her inclusion in competition criticised by some who felt she had an unfair advantage because she was sex-assigned male at birth and had previously competed as a man. And Olympic gold medal-winning South African middle-distance runner Kasta Semenya is currently banned from competition. Officials have told her that she has to take a testosterone-lowering drug to bring her levels into line with other female athletes. Semenya's never publicly identified as intersex, but her body's natural production of testosterone suggests that may be the case. Now, it's important to remember that intersex and trans are not the same thing. Intersex people are born with sex characteristics, including genitals, gonads and chromosome patterns, that do not fit typical binary notions of male or female bodies. Right. Well, transgender refers to a person who identifies their gender as different from the sex recorded at their birth. We'll get to trans, but what can Eric tell us about intersex people? With intersex, because the the conditions are so variable, it's hard to study the exact differences. For example, there are people who are genetically, they have XY chromosome, but they they are uh, androgen insensitive, so they have the external female features. So they might be under the uh, intersex condition. There are all sorts of uh, intersex conditions, so it's really hard to pinpoint what are the physiological differences between them and the majority of the population who have the XY and XX chromosomes. There's a spectrum of physiology. Sometimes the differences are visible at birth, sometimes they become more obvious at puberty, and sometimes you can't really see them at all. So actually measuring the number of intersex people depends on your definition. I'm not sure about the exact number because there are so many intersex conditions. It's not just one condition. There's quite a lot of different variety and every one of them has different uh, prevalence in the general population. And because it's so diverse, it's, it's quite hard to study, uh, to know the exact prevalence for intersex condition. Some experts say the intersex condition may be as common as 1.7% of the population. 
If that's the case here in New Zealand, there would be about 85,000 intersex people. Others say the numbers are smaller, as low as 0.02 of the population, which would mean only 1,000 or so Kiwis. Equally, we don't have reliable statistics for trans and non-binary people, but they will be incorporated into the next census. If it feels like we're spending a lot of time on trans, non-binary and intersex who, whichever way you measure it, still make up a relatively small number of the population. We think it's important because it seems these recent changes in understanding sex and gender are basically changing the way we think about what is normal. Yeah, in the same way that after homosexual law reform in the 1980s, it became clear that a whole lot of people, gay men and women whose sexual identities had been virtually written off by society, were just people. That idea of a spectrum of both sex and gender underlines how one size does not fit all. I think we are all aware in our society there are people with gender dysphoria, some of them uh, since uh, quite young age, and some of them they have an adolescent onset and some of them are adult onset gender dysphoria. And they may identify themselves as in a gender which doesn't match with the sex that they are born with. And they may undergo gender affirmation process where they go through, uh, for example, hormonal therapy so that it can help them with their gender presentation. Just a note here, Eric is at pains to say some and may, because not all of the trans community want to have medical intervention. Some choose simply to identify with another gender. Look, let's face it, the thinking around this is moving pretty fast, and particularly if you're not in the trans community, some of it can be quite confusing. So for example, for male to female transgender, um, I think the preferred term now is transfeminine. They may take estrogen therapy to help with the body feminization, whereas for female to male uh, transgender or the transmasculine, they may take uh, androgenic treatment like testosterone uh, to help with the masculinization of the body. But there are also some who, who may elect surgical treatment, for example, breast reduction in, in the case for transmasculine and also for transfeminine people, they may take uh, estrogen treatment to help with the breast enlargement. These treatments, hormones and surgery, work on the body, but they also have an impact on the mind. And in the case for people with gender dysphoria, they may be distressed with their physical features and by taking this hormone, it may help to improve their psychological well-being. For example, their psychological distress may potentially be alleviated by taking um, treatment that can help them to, to match more with the gender that they want to be. Can I just go back to that moment? So, so when you got the testosterone, when, when the first time, you know, can you sort of take me back to the moment? It felt like being home, like home within my own body and my own person. And that feeling is one that it's so hard to describe to people who haven't experienced it, to be honest. Scout Barber Evans identifies as takatapui. That term, takatapui, has been around forever, but while it was traditionally used to describe an intimate same-sex partner, it's now more of an umbrella term for Māori who are gay, bisexual or transgender, or who sit outside of traditional sexualities and genders. Scout says the physical changes brought about by testosterone patches also brought a huge turnaround in mental health. Within a few months, my mood swings had stopped and I 
felt so strong within myself and I knew who I was. I had this really strong sense of self and I knew that it was right. And so home, I think, is the best way that I can describe it, you know, just feeling safe within myself. But so the impression I'm getting from you is that that's more psychological and physical. Yeah, I mean, within the first month or so, it started creating physical changes and that was just life-giving, like feeling like my body was becoming right and like it was mine because it didn't feel like it was mine before then. So what is that? Is it muscular? Is it hair? Is it it's all of that sort of stuff? Yeah. So when you are transmasculine and you start testosterone therapy, it can affect your hair growth. It can make some of your hair fall out to create, you know, male patterns of hair. It affects your voice. So I used to be a soprano, believe it or not. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of it is like the muscle fat distribution on your body shifts as well. My shoulders are far broader than when I started, for example. Scout says they also noticed an increase in sex drive when they started on testosterone. Nothing dramatic. But at the same time, they didn't feel any increase in aggression. There's this cultural idea, isn't there, that anyone with testosterone raging through our bodies, we must be violent people. We must be like, that's how you show manliness. I'm not a violent person. I'm not an aggressive person. And I just find it so bizarre that people are blaming testosterone for a lot of behavioural things that are really socialised. Scout lives in Dunedin where they grew up, but it was after living in Australia for a couple of years towards the end of their schooling that their gender identity became clearer. I came home and I I had this idea already, like I had this knowledge already, that in most Indigenous cultures there have not just been two genders. But when I came home and I found the work by Elizabeth Kirikiri actually, around Takatapui people and our history and the fact that people who have not fit the Pākehā gender binary have been present in our whakapapa right across Aotearoa, that's when I began to understand that that's who I was. You know, my, my gender identity now and who I am now is intrinsically linked with my whakapapa and with my tūpuna. So to have language that shows me this link with my Māoriness is incredible and that gave me a really big sense of identity and we know that having a good solid sense of identity improves mental health outcomes and that definitely helped me. Scout says that medicalisation risks dehumanising people or viewing their identities as problems to be treated. I don't fit the Western medical model of gender identity quite so much. However, there are a lot of Pākehā people who identify as non-binary who also don't have a conventional idea of gender. The medical community has a lot of catching up to do, I think. I am not a problem to be fixed because I don't identify with the gender that doctors said I was when I was born. Equally, though, there are things that I feel are problems with my body that I am trying to fix. For example, I would really like to not have a uterus anymore. So it's also individual. And I think that societal pressures 
are pretty big around this and there's no one correct way to be transgender or to be transmasculine. Scout's point about maternity wards being gendered, a point that I felt on first hearing it sounded like a wind-up, that's their way of passing on their own experience, having given birth to a daughter, so that in the future the system might be friendlier to people in a similar situation. I don't advocate in that for us to, you know, rename all of the maternity wards into something else or anything like that. What I'm advocating for is another model of practice, you know, like for staff to have an understanding that some of the people who come in aren't going to fit those those rules in that box of, you know, female, mum, mother having a baby. So, you know, having that understanding that for a transmasculine person going into a maternity ward, that's going to be dysphoria-inducing, it's going to be uncomfortable. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Scout gave birth while still grappling with their own gender identity, but now raises their child as the sex she was assigned at birth. Initially, my understanding was that you were sort of transitioning because you described yourself as a father initially, didn't you? My daughter calls me Papa. Right. Yeah. So the male identity is something that initially you've moved towards? I'm definitely more on the masculine end of the spectrum in terms of my gender identity. I don't identify as male, and I did explore it for a while there. I did wonder, but it just doesn't sit right, so I'm definitely somewhere in the middle. But the fact is that the English language doesn't actually have very many options. So I used something that was going to be familiar and that was going to work in a bilingual context, and Papa was what it ended up being. A lot of people grow with children who are they don't push gender stereotypes on them. Yes. Is this something that you've thought of raising your own kid? I chose to raise my daughter using she, her pronouns because I wasn't going to be able to escape it with certain parts of my community. It was an uphill battle to get my gender understood and recognised. And I was the middle, I was in the middle of just so many arguments and so much hatred and so much conflict. And I don't feel like in my situation it would be right to raise my child as the centre of that kind of a conflict. Scout's daughter is about a year younger than my youngest. When my daughter was born, the nurse picked her up and said, definitely a girl. And I was like, oh, interesting, definitely. It's very black and white, isn't it? But equally, obviously, there are times when they feel less definite. And you were saying she's three, weren't you? So this is often an age where um, developmentally kids start to learn what gender is. And so they learn that from us. They, it's a very heavily social thing. A lot of kids around that age, you know, get into kindy and then suddenly there are all of these hard and fast rules that they're learning from somewhere. 
you know, I know kids who have started kindy and suddenly there are boy colours and girl colours, whereas before there weren't. And the kids that start to rebel against that are often the kids that are actually transgender. And so the messages that we're giving kids as young as ours around gender and what that means and how to find your place in this world, they can really shape how someone grows up and the mental health outcomes as people grow up as well. Education, that clearly plays a big role in our understanding of gender. Brad Madden works for the Wairarapa DHB in schools. He's run a range of programs over the years around mentoring young people. One focus is gender. Why do we teach gender in schools now? I think it's to deal with some of the issues, some of the underlying issues that have been there for years and years, like I'm 61. So it was never discussed, never talked about. I think it's important uh, because we are so different. And today, we're allowed to be different. When I was at school, you weren't allowed to be different. If you stepped outside of a box, someone was ready to hit you with something or put a name tag on you. What are the boxes? Oh, I suppose it all depends on what family you come from. You know, if you're from, you know, man must be tough, a man must be this. Uh, There's all of these things, uh, lies about what a a man should be. Um, A man doesn't cry, all of those things. So it's interesting, we've heard about that a bit before, about how these ideas about what a man should and, and shouldn't do uh, can cause issues. But, but how do they cause issues? Like what, what problems come about because of that? I suppose total, total suppression of all that you're feeling. I know the pain from my own journey. You know, when my, say for example, grandmother died and really close to my grandmother But everyone told me I couldn't cry. You know, I wasn't allowed to cry. I had to be tough for my dad. Uh, My dad didn't cry. Uh, You know, I I think I had a couple of tears and told, toughen up. So there was no, you know, you weren't allowed to grieve. You weren't allowed to do any of those normal things that the body wants to do. Yeah. And by not expressing those emotions, do people end up being quite hurt, damaged? So for most of my life, most of my life, till I was 30 maybe, around there, I tried to fit in. I tried to be what everybody wanted me to be. But I was really unhappy, really sad and really lonely on the inside. So I started a journey through counselling in that core way. Um, Who am I? Um, And that's the journey I'm on every day, uh, finding out. You know, um, when my first grandchild was born, feeling this feeling and thinking, wow, what's... And it was different than any other feeling I'd ever felt. How, how's this changing? And if men are more in touch with their emotions, is there suddenly going to be, you know, better relationships, less domestic abuse? Can it solve those issues? I think it's a little bit more harder than that to solve those issues. But if men like who they are, then they can have a healthy relationship. And that's what I find with my working with people. Because they don't like who they are, they go into a relationship that's never going to last. By the time Brad sees these kids, there's already a lot of stereotyping. He remembers speaking to one class. 
we asked them straight up about what they thought about how things should be. And they started telling us how they thought women should be. This was a class of boys. Uh, couldn't believe. Where, where did you get that information? What kind of things? Uh, that girls should shave every part of their body. Brad says that while kids are starting to realise that what they're seeing on porn sites isn't the way things really work, porn is still a huge problem that needs to be addressed. Being able to talk to someone helps. There are other ideas that shape the way we think. Brad is a Christian and we notice he's got a Family First pamphlet on transgender issues. Family First is a conservative Christian lobby group whose views are kind of old school. 20 or 30 years ago, they were probably pretty mainstream. In a nutshell, as their website puts it, they're for policies that encourage acceptance and diversity in a way that communicates to every student they were born in the right body. Basically, they are not into trans people. Is this the kind of thing he's teaching? He says no. Absolutely not. He just reads around to understand the opinions of a wide range of people, to inform himself. And he's clear that not all opinions are good ones. So in terms of who is right on things like the transgender issue, how do you work that out as a teacher? Paediatric society, you know, paediatricians, they're qualified. You know, if I want my car fixed or if I've got an issue with my car, I go to a mechanic. You know, I don't go to a coffee shop. It's a good line, and there's a lot of truth in it. Paediatricians are the ones with the qualifications for working with kids around physical and mental health issues. But whereas mechanics work on cars, and there's a right way to get a car to work, the right way to be with your gender draws a lot of opinions. And don't forget Scout saying that the medical community had some catching up to do around their way of thinking. And again, a lot of that thinking is so deeply embedded that it's hard to see. It's just like the air we breathe. I think the, the expectations of masculinity, the idealised form, they still are quite limited. Dr Pani Farvard is a professor of applied psychology. She now teaches at the New School University in New York, but is a Kiwi who taught at AUT until very recently. So, for example, if a girl wears boys' clothing, no one cares. But if a man, a boy, wears girls' clothing, it's a problem. So that's... You know, limited capacity for um, other sorts of behaviour. And also in that situation, of course, she's trading up her gender, he's trading down his gender. So it's seen as socially problematic. That's a big call. I hadn't thought about trading down, but Pani's absolutely right. Although, remember Rob, the model from the first episode, he wears men's and women's clothes. So maybe this is changing. At the moment, you'd have to say Rob is an outlier. Look at what the vast majority of men wear. We're confined to pretty basic shirts and pants, but women wear pants suits to be businessy. Yeah, just that one illustration encapsulates that sense of girls can do anything, but boys need to be a certain way. It's like boys are being groomed for power because men are given certain privileges in society, or have been for a long time, and with that privilege goes responsibility the responsibility to uphold the status quo. So we have to live up to what society's expectations of us are, to wear trousers rather than a dress, or blue rather than pink, or be tough rather than soft. And that's something we learn. I would say that the, the box of masculinity is actually smaller and more pressured and more constrained. And that is also one way in which gender fluidity or the acceptance of soft masculinity, men who don't have to kind of perform masculinity in a particular way. And we know that a lot of masculinity is actually performance. There's a 
psychologically quite a disconnect between who men are and how they often behave. And it's a, through a sort of developmental process, which you can kind of see it as kids are growing up. You know, boys will still be rather emotional, quite cuddly, quite soft, till about eight or nine. And that's when this kind of like the expectations of boyhood, the expectations of manhood start to kind of creep in. And they limit, A, their emotional um, expression. They start to limit their friendship, their intimate connection, and get more and more internal or kind of insular in their world. And, you know, I think that's one of the reasons we have quite problematic, you know, mental health issues when it comes to young men, and especially, as you know, twice the amount of, like, suicide rates. Tani says there are generations, centuries of reinforcement, led by religion first and then science, around this way of thinking that have fed into where we are now. It was very much about a dichotomy model where men and women were seen as opposites um, and complementary, but men as superior. So it was kind of like if you're, you know, men as independent, women as dependent, men as rational, women as emotional you know, being aggressive versus gentle, active, passive, all that stuff. And the thing is, we would like to think that those stereotypical aspects of gendered identity have disappeared, but they actually haven't fully. We've expanded them a lot, and I think we allow more people to participate in a variety of them. But that model still probably underpins the kind of worldview within the Anglo-West. In the 1990s, an American dude with a ropey qualification wrote a pop psychology book called Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. It sold millions of copies around the world, largely because it felt helpful. Sometimes men and women are different and have different ways of communicating. Understanding that can help a relationship. But unhelpfully, it flattened men and women into ideas that looked easy to understand, but really just reinforced tired old stereotypes, those boxes that Brad talked about and they hide the complexity of how we really are. Unfortunately, a lot of those tired ideas still have a lot of social currency. The interesting thing about the rise of trans culture is that it messes with the inherently conservative view of gender. We can't place it easily, but that doesn't mean we should dismiss it. By recognising that trans people have this different way of being in the world, it helps us all understand that there's a whole spectrum of different ways to live our own gender. Yeah, but there are still lots of old-school social cues going on. The way we think about gender is reflected in what we think of as the ideal body type. Our culture, historically and to date, exacerbates those differences. So basically, we, we encourage our boys to be muscular and big. You know, it's part of masculinity being strong, and we encourage women to kind of stay slim and tight these days. But so I, I would say that those natural biological, morphological, physical differences are exaggerated by our current culture. So, what about behaviour? I mentioned to Pani that I was trying to work out how to talk to a player in the schoolboy rugby team I help coach. Last week, he got penalised and he was annoyed and threw the ball at one of the opposition. Kind of made me want to yell at him, but I'm guessing that isn't the right approach. You sort of say, look, you have those negative feelings, but as, as a human, you need to be able to control those outbursts. That's what makes us different to like animals is that we have the capacity to control ourselves no matter how angry we are. And I think restrained and emotional regulation is a really big thing that a lot of boys don't learn. 
Pani is keen to point out that emotional regulation doesn't mean that men should be the kind of unflinching warriors who never feel their feelings. The strong, silent type who just bottle it up. Stoicism actually usually <laughs> leads to bad things. You know, the more you don't express yourself, then suddenly, like, you explode, and that's what it is. So it's neither being, like, have absolutely no response so that you're, you know, being, what is it, like, when you're playing poker and no one can read you. We don't want that. You know, we don't want to have a poker face. What you want to do is appropriately and responsibly share your true feelings. So short, you have to display vulnerability, and that's the hard part for boys and men is that you, and girls, actually, People don't want to show vulnerability, so they don't want to say, I'm actually hurt. Usually at the, at the base of anger, it actually hurts. Feeling hurt is not something I'm very good at. I tend to either feel guilty about feeling hurt in the first place or get angry about it. Maybe both. Yeah, it feels like losing somehow. You just don't want to admit that you're feeling hurt. That said, and I don't want to hurt you here, at least I can cook. How hard can it be to make quiche clean? Hey, back off, John. Hasn't the whole point of this episode been about accepting differences? Anyway, hopefully John will shut up about cooking and we'll hear more about the frustrations and joys of his coaching career in the next episode. We'll also look at the very serious side of emotional hurt, why so many men struggle with it, and how it ends up being a weapon they use against themselves and others. You'll Be Right is a Stuff and Bird of Paradise production. It was written and produced by me, Glenn McConnell, and John Daniel. Noel McCarthy was the associate producer. The music's from Anthony Tonnen and sound design and editing by Andre Upston. Carol Hirschfeld is the commissioning editor for Stuff, and the executive producer was Patrick Crutzen. This series was made possible by funding from New Zealand On Air. For more from the series, go to stuff.co.nz forward slash he'll be right. That's H-E-L-L, be right. There, you can listen to all the episodes and find links for subscribing on your favourite podcast app, plus a series of essays. Also, Snapchat guide Tom Sainsbury has made a brilliant series of short videos about modern masculinity. They're all on the website too.